Find Malachi in your Bible. Turn on your Bible, and then uh, we'll watch this video. I'll be right back with you. There's 12 books in the Old Testament that go from Hosea the whole way up to Malachi, and they're called the Minor Prophets. We will take one Sunday and look at each one of the Minor Prophets in order and really try and get at the question, what does this book tell us about Jesus? Jesus is all through the Old Testament. You just have to know where to look. So as I mentioned a moment ago, we have, if you are new to us, welcome. My name's Phil. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Echo. And uh, we have been this summer studying through the minor prophets. They're minor not because they're unimportant. They're minor because of their length. They're shorter in length than the grouping of major prophets, the major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're a little bit longer. Uh, but these are a very important group of messengers that God sent over a 450-year period to, uh, to Israel. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And we come to the 12th and final prophet of the Old Testament, and that being the prophet Malachi. And so he wraps up 450 years of speaking to his people through messengers. These are his final words. And I want you to know that after he makes the last sentence through the prophet, God goes completely silent for 400 years. This will be the last message he speaks to his people through prophets until a man named John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness. In fact, within Malachi, God tells them he, he kind of gives them a teaser of the next prophet that will come. But God goes silent for 400 years. Let that sink in for just a second. Four centuries, no sermons, no goosebumps during worship, no response to prayers. Four centuries is a long time to give someone the silent treatment that you love. And this is what we're going to read today. And I want you to know that Malachi is a very cold, hard word. God is tired, not physically tired because God doesn't wear down. But he says himself he is wearied by his people. He's hurt. He's frustrated. There's no poetry in Malachi. There's no flowery language. It's prose. It's very direct. It's very blunt. And God is communicating to his kids a very simple message. You could summarize the message of the whole book this way. I have always loved you, but I no longer enjoy you. I've always loved you, and I will always love you, but there is literally nothing about you that brings me pleasure. How would you like to be on the other side of that statement? Now, the book doesn't start that way. God gets one sentence into his message when he's interrupted. In fact, the prophet is heckled throughout the entire book. There's one sermon that God's trying to get out, and it's interrupted, depending on how you chop it up, anywhere between 9 and 12 times by hecklers. 
And when Malachi, if that's his real name, Malachi means messenger, there's a great debate as to whether this book is anonymous and it's just titled The Messenger, or whether Malachi is actually the name of the messenger. Uh, Malachi is not a common name among the Jewish people, so there's some thinking that Malachi isn't actually the individual's name, but that he's just being anonymous. It's just the messenger. We don't know anything about him other than that. He's interrupted between 9 and 12 times by the people, by the priests, who heckle God through this prophet. They are indignant. They are disconnected. They accuse God of being everything from a liar to being a manipulator to being an exaggerator to being an absentee father to being evil. And what Malachi is, is when he forms the final book, he decides to keep all of those interruptions and sharp exchanges between God and the people that he loves. He chooses to write them into the final product. So that Malachi actually now reads like a series of sharp exchanges between God and the people that he loves. So it's a tough book in that regard. It's a tough book to read. Now, if you've attended church for any length of time, it's likely that you've heard something from Malachi before. Do you know what Malachi is usually most famous for? One particular topic. Tithing, they said with no enthusiasm at all, right? That's why we have record crowds today, right? You wanted to come out and hear about tithing. It's kind of unfortunate that that's the only part that we pull out of here and oftentimes, most of the time, probably pull it out uh, incorrectly and out of context, but that's not the main focus of the letter. It is a focus of this particular prophecy, but here's where God is saying to his people, I have always loved you. These are the last words I'm going to say to you for 400 years, and he starts off the whole letter by saying, verse 2, I have always loved you, but as you read through the book, you see I've always loved you. I just no longer enjoy you. So uh, just a little bit of history. I was going to show you a video this morning, and I edited an eight-minute video down to four-minute video because eight minutes is a long video to watch on a Sunday morning. And then when I sent the attachment over to the media team, I just realized this morning that I sent them the eight-minute version, not the four-minute version. So we won't lengthen the service by eight minutes. I'll upload it later to our social media if you want to see it. You can also go to thebibleproject.com and watch the entire video on Malachi. It's great. It's, eight, it's seven minutes and nine seconds long, and it's really helpful, and it's just going to give you an animated overview of the structure of the book, the history behind it, and the major themes. I can summarize quickly. Malachi is written 100 years after the exiles have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And every week that we've taught on this, we've given you a, an overview of the history, the shortened version of it is that prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet came to Israel and said, if you don't straighten up and return to God, judgment is going to happen in the form of your nation is going to be conquered by foreigners and you're going to be put back in slavery again. You're going to be taken as captives again. And nine of the 12 prophets that we've studied so far talked to Israel at that period in their history. However, they didn't straighten up and fly right, and so the northern kingdom fell, and then the southern kingdom of Judah with, it, with Jerusalem fell next. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians, and they carried most of the people off to captivity in Babylon. However, the Babylons were eventually conquered, just like God said they would be, as a form of judgment against them. 
They were conquered by the Persians, and under the Persian leadership, they said, those of you that are living here in captivity are now free to go home, and 50,000 Israelites took them up on that offer, mostly men, mostly priests. And they went back to Jerusalem, and here's the part you need to understand. These people who moved back 100 years before this prophecy had a very clear dream and a very clear plan. They came back to be part of the promises of God. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to rebuild the temple which had been brought down completely to the ground. They wanted to rebuild the walls which surrounded the entire city. They wanted to have a king put back in place again. They didn't want to be ruled. They wanted to be a sovereign nation. And they wanted God to return his glory to Israel like it was back in the days of David because that's what God promised. God said, listen, one day I'm going to have my glory over my nation again. You're going to be a free people. I'm going to send you a king and he's going to rule and he's going to reign and my temple is going to be glorious again. And, my, and the people of the world will look at Israel as, as a shining example of a good God and I will make you the star and the sun among all the nations. And they came back, not because it promised an economic advantage to them, but they came back on a spiritual mission. Those 50,000 exiles returned because they wanted to be part of seeing this come to pass. And 100 years after they got back, things were really bad and they were getting worse. 100 years after they got back, they had rebuilt the temple, but it was such a small, pitiful little thing. It was nothing compared to what they were imagining. They rebuilt the city walls. Incidentally, the rebuilding of the walls and the temple in detail are recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They happen in the same time period chronologically as these events. They rebuilt the city walls with the intention of making it safe and inviting and that, and that the Israelites would move back in and the Jews would repopulate the urban center of Jerusalem again. However, even after they rebuilt the walls, the city, city was still deserted. They just simply couldn't recruit people to move into the city. They all preferred living in the country. And the city didn't have that feeling of energy and life that they imagined. They had no palace they had no king. In fact, Zerubbabel, the governor, was living in a poor house. They weren't in charge of their own country. They were still being ruled by the Persians. They weren't the only inhabitants of the land, the Samaritans, who we talked about two weeks ago. The Samaritans still lived there, and they resented that the Jews were there. And they still more or less felt as though they were living as refugees in their own land. Their economy was in recession. Their crops were not doing well. Their earnings were not really high. And as a result of this, they started to ask questions. And the questions they were asking were simply this. Was it really all worth it? We made a decision to relocate, to leave gainful employment, to uproot our families and move and start a new risky adventure with the best of intentions. And 100 years later, how has God come through for us? It's worse than it was when we were back in Babylon. Which generations earlier, didn't their forefathers say, if only we could go back to Egypt. So much better there. This is too hard. God has forgotten about us. He hasn't sent us a king. He hasn't restored our population. We're still being ruled by the Persians. God has stopped caring about us. And so we are going to stop caring about him. Religion just doesn't pay. Why bother became the rallying cry. Consumerism took over. And their new mantra was earn all we can, spend all we can, give as little as we can. 
They still worshiped, though. They still worshiped. They brought their tithe. They brought offerings. They had sacrifices. They went to the priests. The temple still had some form of operation. It was just very different than what God commanded of them. The priests no longer preached sermons. They avoided things like confrontation, correction, discipline. As long as people brought them income and they could get their paycheck and the people seemed to be okay with this, the priests just sent it in and they became men pleasers, not God pleasers. We see that there is a type of worship that people like that God doesn't. You can have worship that's popular and the crowds enjoy that God hates. And we see that happening in Malachi. So these sharp interactions go back and forth, but their chief complaint, their chief complaint is this. God, where is justice for us? You're no God of justice. We look around at all these foreigners and these people that worship other gods, and you know what? They're getting paid. They're loving life. They're having great weekends. They're building big houses and buying second ones. And you tell us not to be like them, but to follow you. And here we are, the righteous, the Jews, your people. We don't have any extra to go around. We live a hard, difficult, cold life. We followed you into this, and nothing you've promised has come true. And because you've been a bad dad to us, we've cooled in our affection to you. Where is the justice for us? Why don't we get what we deserve? And the problem is when you start to see yourself as pretty good, you start to see God as pretty bad. When you start to be able to build your resume to God, you start to feel deserving of something. Entitled to something. And you feel like if you're not getting what you perceive you deserve, that God is somehow kind of bad. He's misleading. He's slow. He's stingy. It's only when you recognize that I'm pretty bad (laughs) do you start to see God as pretty good. And so they're wanting, complaining, where is justice? Where is the king? Where is the one that's going to make it right? And God answers them in, in what some call the climax of the book. Let me read this to you. It's in your notes. Chapter 3. God says, justice is coming, but it's not what you think. You want justice? Let me tell you what's coming. He says, look, I am sending my messenger, my Malachi, and he will prepare the way before me. Incidentally, do you know who this is referring to? John the Baptist. I'm going to send a messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Do you remember what John's first sermon was recorded? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make the path straight. Fulfillment of this prophecy. He knew who he was. Then, after this, then, meaning next, then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. You see what God's saying? Oh, you think I've forgotten about you. I haven't. 
I'm going to send you justice. I'm going to send you your king. I'm going to send you your Lord. Not because you deserve it, but because I said that I would. First, I'm going to send a messenger so you know he's on the way. And then suddenly, he will come into his temple. Now who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now you'd think everybody would be sitting up straight at this point. Uh Uh-huh. See? We've pinned him down. We're going to get what we want. We're going to get the king. We're going to get the Lord of the covenant. We're going to get the promised one that is going to make life right for us and bring justice on our behalf. But he continues with verse 2. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Now that doesn't sound quite like what they're thinking of. Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal. Or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites. Well, aren't the Levites supposed to already be purified? Aren't they supposed to be clean? You know what he's saying is they're not clean. Your priests, your leaders are filthy, and they need to be cleaned with strong soap. He actually uses more colorful language earlier on that I don't know I'll be able to read. He actually talks about uh, he's so mad he's going to take the manure the goats have dropped and smeared it across their face. How would you like to be the recipient of that letter? From God. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. In other words, the sacrifices you're offering right now, I don't want them. I don't accept them. I don't have them. Take up the offering and set it on fire. I don't even want it. Then once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah in Jerusalem, just like he did in the past. At that time, I'll put you on trial. Now listen, he, he writes a laundry list of the things he's coming after that were going on in the people at the time of the writing of this letter. I'm eager to witness against all sorcerers, all adulterers, and liars. Interesting, next sentence, which I'll read without any commentary today. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. Because if you do that, you don't fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So what God's saying to them? Judgment is coming. The king is coming. And you're first in line. Judgment will begin with my people. The reason they're asking for judgment is because they think they're pretty good. And God's saying, don't you see that me postponing judgment and justice for you is an act of my mercy? You're saying, give us what we deserve. And God's saying, you don't want what you deserve. We just disagree about what we think you deserve. So we've asked a few questions. Let me ask a couple more. A couple more we'll ask. These are in your notes. What does God mean by love and hate? There's some tricky verses in Malachi that when you read through them have caused many people to stumble over who they think God is as a result of reading this. One of the reasons we read the prophets is to understand who God is better. In fact, for us who live 2019, 
that's probably the highest and the best that we can pull from this because the reality is we are not people of Judah in, you know, 400 B.C. That's not our culture. That's not our religion. These are not our leaders. These promises and curses in many ways are not directed to the church or to us. They're directed to Israel and to the Judeans. And so sometimes we can be in too much of a hurry to read ourselves into the story. It's called replacement theology, where we go through the whole Old Testament and put church or Christian in place of Israel. And that's, that's going to really mess you up really fast. God loves Israel. Those are his people. And the promises he made to Israel will be fulfilled the way that God said that he would fulfill them. Um, but we read through these to understand God better, but there's some really troubling language in the beginning. This isn't in your notes, but you can follow along if you have your Bible with you. Chapter 1, verse 2, here's what God says. I have always loved you. Now, I'm wondering, is this the tone the entire letter was supposed to take? Because he starts off, I have always loved you. Like I said, like a father who gathers up his kids in his lap. And the first thing he says, I've always loved you. And what his kids do is they cuss him and they slap him. They interrupt a couple words in the most tender thing God probably could say to them, knowing what was going on is, I've always loved you. And their response, how would you want your kid to respond to you if you say, I just love you so much? What are they supposed to say? I love you too, daddy, mommy, uncle, auntie. I love you too. Here's how they respond. Literally, it's right in here. God says, I've always loved you, but they retorted, really? How have you loved us? Do you understand how broken the relationship is? God himself says them, I've always loved you, and they say, really? You see what's bubbling up? They're suspicious. They think God's lying to them. They think he's manipulating them. They think God is not self-aware whatsoever, that God is completely disconnected from reality. They say, you don't love us. You don't really love us. Prove it. Spell it out. That's how the letter begins. One thing you don't want to do is get into this type of a prove-it argument with God. So God replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected. Better translation for the word rejected, and some of your Bibles say this. Israel has I, have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. And then in verse 5, when you see the destruction for yourselves, you should say, you will say, truly the Lord's greatness reaches beyond Israel's border. How have you shown us your love? He says, Israel I've loved, Esau I've hated. And people, oh, God hated? I don't think, I didn't think God hates. You have to understand the Old Testament definitions, the Hebrew definitions of love and hate. Love literally means, in their language, to care for someone and seek their highest good. Hate means the complete opposite, not to care for someone and not to seek their highest good. And God's tracing this thing the whole way back and their heritage to the brothers of Jacob and Esau. And we've been through the story. They didn't get along. Lots of controversy. But Jacob ended up winning the birthright. God changes his name to Israel. And he becomes the patriarch 
of God's chosen people. Esau, on the other hand, his people become the Edomites, and there is a centuries-long hatred between the Edomites and the Israelites. In fact, so much so that when the Babylonians ran in to run over Judah, the Edomites joined in and grabbed their, <laughs> their ancestral brothers and sisters' babies by the ankles and joined in and swinging their heads and smashing their skulls against the rocks. That's how much the Edomites hated the Israelites, the people of Esau, hated the people of Jacob. And what God says is, over the past 150 years, I've done nothing but good for you. And I've done nothing but punishment for them. Every time they, try, I, I, every time they tried to build up their civilization, I brought it back down. Every time they tried to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, I sent somebody in to run, run roughshod over them. And what have I done for you for the past 150 years? Nothing but good. I brought you home. I gave you protection. I sent prophets to you. I've given my love to you. I've given strategy to you. I've given provision to you. And if you would look around and see what your life could have been like compared to what it actually is, you should be thankful for what you have. Friend, my life should not look like what it does today. My story should end this way. Divorced, childless, ashamed, alone, eking out a living, and anonymity, and total loneliness and shame. That's how my story should be. But that's not how my story is. It has nothing to do with a strong work ethic. It has nothing to do with any degree or any career pursuit. It has everything to do that I've ultimately surrendered control of my life to Jesus Christ. And when I compare what my life looks like today to what it could be, guess what? You know what I deserve? I don't deserve anything. That I deserve hell. Anything above that is a blessing, and anything beyond that is a benefit. And what God is saying to Israel is, you want to see how much I love you? Look around at what your life could look like, and then look at how I'm treating you, and you should be thankful. That's what he means by love and hate. I've always sought your highest good and I have always been concerned about you and compare yourself to your brothers who have done evil in my sight. I have not sought their highest good. I have not cared about them. I have sent judgment and damage and destruction upon them so much so that they are completely wiped off the face of the earth generations later. Can't even find them anymore. Next question. Before the next question, can I just leave this thought with you about that exchange? Don't you see that God absorbs a lot of hurt that we've caused him? To have his kids sit on his lap and he says he loves them and they slap him in the face and curse him. Call him a liar and an exaggerator and a manipulator. They're treating him as the opposite of who he really is because they're not getting what they want. When you lose an appreciation for what God has done in your life, you will lose all motivation to do the things he asks you to do. Don't you see that God is the father who has absorbed so much abuse from us? And yet he says, I've always loved you. Even though you've failed me, I won't fail you. Even though you've backed away from me, I'm still here. If you'll return to me, I'll return to you. We see a lot of those themes bubble up throughout this letter. Question number two, how does God address the incessant heckling that interrupts his messenger 12 times in this prophecy? We're not going to go through all the interruptions. Let's just look at a couple. We looked at the first one already. He says, I've always loved you, and they interrupt, and they challenge, 
and they're suspicious of God. Here's a couple others. Um, he goes next to the priests. He singles them out, the leaders. At this time, they have a theocracy. They don't have a democracy. They're not a republic. They are a theocracy. God reigns as their king, and then he executes their local government and their local religious through one group of people called the priests from the tribe of Levi. They're the ones that are serving the dual role as both the governmental leaders and also the religious leaders in a theocracy. And he goes after them next. Their job was to represent God to the people and the people to God. He expected more out of them than anyone else. Here's what he says next. Where, verse 6. Where is my honor and respect? You are treating me with contempt. He's saying to the priest, you're disrespectful to me. You have dishonored me and you treat me with contempt. And it should be obvious. But here's what the priests say. When have we ever done that? You're exaggerating. Spell it out. How brazen do you have to be to go toe-to-toe like that with anybody, especially God? How low do they think of him? God responds, well, how about the defiled sacrifices you're bringing me? Then the priests respond again, you're exaggerating again. We know the sacrifices we're bringing you. You should be thankful we're bringing them at all. How are they defiled, God? Spell it out for us. You're exaggerating. Here's God's question. Well, here's the way he gets after it. He says, you're bringing me crippled, blind, diseased animals for sacrifices. He's, it's kind of like saying, you know what, you've got a seven-year-old who wants a dog for their birthday. And you show up on there because you love your seven-year-old and they could want anything that you'll have to clean up after later, right? And you say, I love my kids so much, I'm going to go get him a dog. And you come home that day, hey, here's Sparky. Awesome, a dog, a dog, a dog. Can he fetch? Nah, he's blind. Has two legs. Okay, can he do tricks? Nah, he's crippled. The two legs he does have don't work. What can he do? Oh, nothing. Happy birthday, buddy. God says you wouldn't do that to your seven-year-old. God gets after this. He says, why would you give me something you would never give to somebody else you love or respect as a gift? And then expect me to be excited about it. Another way of looking at it, you got a hot date. They're coming over. You're going to give them your best meal, which on your budget is sandwiches. And you open up the refrigerator and you've got two sandwiches in there. And the first one you pull out has been in there, oh, for about three and a half weeks. It now has a beard. <laughs> Smells like Satan's breath. It is terrible. It has things crawling out of it and into it. And then next to it, you have, you have one that was just brought home today. And it is, it is everything. It's the right kind of bread. It's the right kind of wheat. It's the right kind of vegetables. And you got somebody coming over that you really need to impress, and you're already on sandwiches, right? You can't even do filet mignon. You've got sandwiches. What you would not do is say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to scarf down the good one and set out the bearded one for when they come over. That'll impress them. 
You never do that. You would never have company into your house and set out spoiled, rotten, defective, deficient, poisoning-inducing food for them to eat and think that they're going to be pleased and honored by that. That's almost commonsensical. God says, when you bring me the worst of what you have, here's another, literally, it's the least that I can do scenario. You have the best, which I've asked for, and then you have the worst. And what you're doing is you're saying, I could bring him nothing, but instead I'll bring an offering, because you know what, I should bring an offering, don't want God to get mad. I'm going to bring him this. I'm going to bring him the bearded one. I'm going to bring him the crippled one. I'm going to bring him the lame one. Knowing full well you'd never give that to anybody else and pass it off as a gift and expect them to be excited about it. They'd be insulted. And God says, this is what you do every Sunday. You bring, he's, he's saying to the priest, you're not the one bringing it. You're the one receiving it. The people are bringing you something they know is not their best and you know is not their best, but to you it's good enough because you can still eat. And so rather than offend them by teaching them or rebuking them or calling them on it or teaching them about giving, you just take it because it's your paycheck and it's good for you and it's good for them and you're happy with your worship and I hate it. You've become casual. And why in the world would you expect me to be excited about something that you would never expect anybody else to be excited about? Like you can just bring me any old worship you want and because I just, I just can't see anything but good in your life, I'll just be excited about it. You give more than that to everything else. He rebukes the priests. He rebukes the people. And now they don't have a reply, so God continues. I'll just read to you what he says next. Verse, I want you to listen to this. Verse 10, how I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. He says, I would rather your church be shut down and the property sold off for redevelopment than to have to deal with this kind of worship. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of Heaven's army, and I will not accept your offerings. But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord's of army. God's saying, I'd rather have churches closed, doors shut, instruments unplugged and put away, wallets closed up, than to have to deal with your insincere, unprepared, half-baked, thoughtless, begrudging worship. I'd rather my people stay home than bring me their tired, lazy cast-offs to church. Go ahead and collect the offering, he says to the priest, but just bury it or set it on fire. Go do what you want with it. I don't want a penny of it. Wow. This is taking a turn for the worst. Let's move more quickly through some of the other sharp exchanges because these are so warm and fuzzy, aren't they? He continues in chapter 1. He says, your actions dishonor my name when you bring contaminated foods as offerings. Here's what the people say. Verse 12 of chapter 1. God says, you're not bringing me the proper food. You're not going through the time to prepare the food you're bringing as an offering to me. 
you're not preparing it the right way. It takes some time. There's some thought. There's some cleansing that goes into it. Yourself, you could read all about this. And it was clearly spelled out. They knew this. They're bringing defiled food. In other words, they're not even going through the steps. They're just kind of last minute pulling it together as, a, as an afterthought almost. Because, no, we, we, we still need to do worship. Makes us feel good. And he says, but you're, you're defiling the whole service because you're approaching me on the basis that you think is comfortable for you, but worship is approaching me on the basis that I say you're supposed to relate to me on. That's what worship is. Worship is relating to God the way he asks us to relate to him, not the way that feels best to us. It's not a, worship is not for you. It is for God. Now, that will rock some of your worlds. Singing songs on Sunday morning, it's not for you. We don't teach what we think you'd like to hear, or I would never talk about finances ever. Because you show me with your feet and your wallet that you don't like when I talk about it. That's okay. I'll keep talking about it when it comes up in the Bible, and it comes up a lot. It's part of discipleship. But God's saying you defile the whole experience when you bring in contaminated offerings. And here's how the people respond. It's too hard, is exactly what they say. What you're asking is too hard. And it says, and then they turned up their noses and snorted at God's commands. You ever had a a young person that you gave them an assignment or a chore to do? Hey, I need you to, I need you to, you know, pick up the dishes and put them in the dishwasher. (sighs) Fine. You let that slide. I would have been six foot three in my life if I had not done things like that at home. Because every time. (laughs) This is the connotation. The connotation is that when God asked his kids to bring proper sacrifices, they said it's too hard, and they snorted and they rolled their eyes. Like a a child who begrudgingly is offended that his parents who pay for everything ask them to do something simple, like take their dish eight feet and put it into a device that will wash the dish for them. And these grown-up adult Jews, when God says, this is the type of sacrifice you're supposed to be bringing, and you're not putting in the time or the effort or the thought, you're just dragging, you don't even think about your acts of worship. You just go through the motions. They say, it's just too hard. Haven't you ever complained? That's too hard. Church asks you to serve. Oh, that's too hard. Why don't you... Why don't you give of your finances to God? You give it to Disney, you give it to Target, you give it to coffee, you give it to vacations, you give it to electronics, you give it to cable. Why don't you give to God? That's too hard for me. I'd rather just volunteer my time. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess you're, in, you're not in the New Testament giving where God says, I appreciate that you're prophesying and teaching, and I appreciate that you're good at leading worship, and the song services are good, Paul says to the Corinthians. But there's this matter of your giving, and I want you to be excellent in your giving, just like you're trying to be excellent in everything else. Your serving doesn't replace your giving, and your giving doesn't replace your serving. You don't cherry pick. The sad thing is that the person who needs to hear that will just blow that off and dismiss it, just like these people and the people that are hearing it. It just frustrates them and makes them feel all alone. 
The unfortunate thing about Malachi is it's a necessary message that fell on deaf ears. So how excited was I to deliver it this morning? Because the reality is the hardest person to try and help is the person who just doesn't see that they need any help. They lack the self-awareness and humility to own any part of the problem. It's the people who will dig through the Bible to find any reason to get away with giving God the least possible that they can. The least possible. How would you like to be in a relationship with someone who comes to you with regular justification of why they should do as little for you as possible? You know, I realize your birthday's coming up, and I know you want A, B, C, D, and E, but I've been thinking about it. Here's the nine reasons why I think you should get less than what you're asking for. In baseball, this is called salary arbitration. This is when teams can't get together on a contract about what they believe someone should be paid. And so the player says, I think I should be paid $9 million. And the team says, I think they should be paid $6 million. And if they can't resolve it, they go in front of the judge. And the team under which the team that has the contract gets to present their argument as why that player should be worth less money than what they're asking for. And every time it goes to a judge, it normally damages the relationship forever. Don't you understand that, you know, God is not someone looking for you to arbitrate with him what belongs to him and what belongs to you. Why would you come to God and try and convince him that you somehow should be okay with giving less, being less, doing less. You know what, what it boils down to? It's just too hard. It's just too hard. It's too hard for me to serve, too hard for me to give, too hard for me to forgive, too hard to love, too hard to pray, too hard to read. If God would just fix my life, then maybe I could give him a little more and be a little nicer to him. That's all rubbish. It's all just an indication that there's coldness in your heart towards God, and no sermon will repair that. No offering will put that in the right place. Volunteering for a team isn't going to fix it. It's a heart problem. They had a heart problem. They just didn't think that they did. And that's why this largely fell on deaf ears. I have to hurry on. What God's saying to them is worship that costs you nothing means nothing. God, this is too hard. We're going to give you something that doesn't cost us, doesn't inconvenience us. We'll give you offerings that don't cut into how we live. We'll give you service after we've given all of our time away, Monday through Saturday. I hear, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. The church works me too hard. I don't think the 90 minutes you serve at church once or twice a month is the thing that's teetering your life from being well-rested to being fatigued. I think your whole life is out of order. It's the same people that I run into, and you're tired on Monday, you're tired on Wednesday, and you fill your life with all kinds of things you don't have to that you think are valuable, and the first thing you want to cut out is what you do for God. And say the church works you too hard. <laughs> it's too hard, God. What you're saying is I want to give away everything else that I have and the leftovers that I'm giving you. You should be satisfied with those. And God says, you know what? Keep your leftovers. I don't want them. Let's just put us both out of our misery. Wow. Continuing on. God says, in chapter 2, I won't accept your worship any longer. I'll just hit these real quick and we'll close. Because this is no fun to preach and probably no fun to listen to. I want to get to the, I guess there's a little bit of a good part in here. Let me get to that part. Um, He says, I won't accept your worship any longer in chapter 2. And the people say, now you're being unreasonable. Why won't you accept our worship? And here's what he says. The summary is, because your lips and your lives should be saying the same thing, but they're not. You're singing me songs on Sunday that you don't mean because you don't live them. So I'm not accepting it. I won't accept insincere worship. So just put yourself out of the misery. Singing those songs for 20 minutes, if you don't mean them, means nothing to me. And it means nothing to you. Oh, but it makes me feel good. Worship isn't about you. Later on, he says, God says, you've drained me and made me weary with your questions of doubt. 
And they're like, we know what we've been asking you. How have we drained you? Prove it to us. God responds, when you accuse me of being indifferent to evil and asking me to send justice, you drain me. Don't you realize that when I send justice, you'll be first in line? And if I were to send justice today, none of you would survive. But of course, you don't see it that way. Then chapter three, here's some hope. You might have broken my covenant, but I'll never break it. You've quit on me, but I'll never quit on you. And he says, return to me and I'll return to you. Even in the midst of all this mess, people that are just basically sticking up their middle finger into the face of God. And God has said, there's nothing about you that I enjoy. But he says, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. Now, if I'm the one in the audience at this point, I'm crawling on my face and begging him to take me back. Here's how they respond. You're so extra. How offensive to accuse us of desertion. We've never left you. This is like being in that situation where you say to someone who's obviously done you wrong, listen, if you'll just apologize, just take ownership of this. We can move forward. And they say, I'm not, apologize for what? This is what the people are saying. God's saying, you've deserted me, but I'll take you back. Return to me. They're like, return to you? You're acting like we've deserted you. You're always blowing things out of proportion, God. How have we deserted you? Do you see how blind they are? God's hitting them right in the face with truth. And they're saying, you are not talking about me. And the shame of it is the very same person that's hearing that message this morning is doing the very same thing. So God says, well, here's how you've deserted me. You cheated on me. How have we cheated you? How much time do I have? Okay. He says two things. You've robbed me with the tithe and you've robbed me with the offering. Everybody's getting ready for this part, right? Tithes. Tenth. Jews paid three tithes. They paid one-tenth annually to the priests that went to compensate them for the job that they did and take care of their expenses as the leadership went to payroll. They paid a second tithe, another 10%. That went to fund the communal feasts that they did every year to fund the ministry and the work of the government and their theocracy. And then every three years, they paid a third tithe as a temple tax. So if you break that all down, every year, the Jews paid about 23 or 24% in tithes, which to them was a fixed amount that God assigned as a tax to fund the work of the temple and the government. That did not include their free will offerings. That was what they gave above and beyond the fixed amount. So at the time of the Old Testament, the Jews were expected to do two things. One was the tithe, in their case the tithes, which was a fixed amount and expected and required. It was a tax to them. They were also expected to give free will offerings above and beyond that, and they could decide how much of that they wanted to give. No different in the New Testament, really. Jesus says you pay your taxes and you give God what belongs to his. We don't see the tithe repeated again or taught, or instructed, or mandated again after Jesus' finished work on the cross, leading many to believe that the tithe was strictly an Old Testament thing, no longer needs to be practiced anymore, and Christians are free to give what they want. And I would say, I categorically would agree with that. However, if you read the entirety of the New Testament, you'll never see a case where Christians chose not to give. The majority of the teaching in the New Testament about giving is that Christians were overgiving. They had they were giving to the point of causing themselves duress. 
And that's why all throughout the New Testament, you see give in relationship to what you have. In other words, understand what your budget is and give what you can, what you want to give that you can give. Give proportionately. Talks about giving first and first fruits. Pastor, do you believe practicing the tithe is wrong? Depends how you're practicing it. If you believe that giving 10% of your money gives you the right to split your income with a solid sharpie between saying 10% of what I have is God's, 90% is mine. God has no right to the other 90%, and I'll give him this 10%, not out of love, but just out of begrudgingly giving him that part, then you're practicing the tithe wrong. If you're practicing the tithe because you believe that it's a condition of your salvation, you're practicing it wrong. Because the person who gives God nothing has drawn a line. They say, on this side of the line is what belongs to God, and on this side of the line is what belongs to me, and there's no debate here. And one person says it's 0% God's, 100% mine. The other person says it's 10% God, and it's 90% mine, and God has no right to this, and they're both wrong. It's all God's. You should give God what you can give, what you want to give, what you're able to give, and what you can give cheerfully without holding back. And if your heart says, I don't want to give God anything, then his spirit doesn't necessarily live inside of you because when you get saved, the heart of the giver comes and lives inside of you. Don't we say, I want the love of Jesus, I want the patience of God, I want the power of God? Great, do you want the generosity of him too? No, he can hold on to that. And what God is really driving at here is this. When Jesus says, give me your sins, give me your sins, you know what we say? Thank you. I will give you all my sin. I will be ridiculously generous to you with my sin. Take everything I've done wrong. Take all my past. Take my future. Take everything I haven't even sinned in yet. Take it all. And Jesus says, I'll have it. Now give to me of your wealth. Oh, what are your motives? Can I get an itemized list of what you're going to do with that? That's my other favorite. Well, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't trust. I, I mean, I give, but just not to the church. I don't, I don't believe in that. Really? On what basis? Well, I, I don't know where it's all going. Okay, well, I'll accept that if you can also tell me, have you asked BGE where all their money goes? Have you asked Target where all their money goes? Have you asked the place where you buy your coffee, where they invest all their money? Is that really the metric you use to determine where your money goes? And if that's the case, you shouldn't give it to anybody. <laughs> well, I just don't trust the church. Okay, find a different church. If you can't trust us with your money, how can you trust us with your soul? Listen, every time I talk about money, like the last two times I talked about it, no new giving. I understand it doesn't inspire people to give. It's okay. That's not my motive. My motive is your soul. And I'm trying to show through some of the shallow excuses. Here's what God is getting at. Why would you be so generous to me with your sin and so stingy with me with your wealth? Why would you give with enthusiasm of your worst and with begrudgingness of your best? Why would you enthusiastically give Jesus all of the gore and the yuck of your life and then when you have the opportunity to give him of your best, you hold it back to yourself? Is that the sign of a son or a daughter who has a healthy relationship with their father? But he says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. You might be asking, let me just give you the three points so you can fill them in and you don't have ADD later on because I didn't fill in the blanks. Let me just give you the application. I've, I've hit them all already. Let me just let you fill them in if you haven't anticipated already. Number one, 
When we get casual with spiritual things, moral things are sure to follow. You keep reading what you see hap happening at this time was the men were not only saying, why bother be faithful to God? They were saying, why bother, why bother be faithful to my wife? Oh, wait, I can't stand up. Camera's here. Uh, why bother be faithful to my wife? So what you have happening at this same time is that men, as their wives got older and lost their sex appeal, they traded her in for a younger, sexier model. And they just divorced their aging wives and they started marrying. But the problem was it was mostly men that returned, so they ran out of Jewish women to remarry for them all to have multiple, you know, we call this successive polygamy. You can have as many wives as you want as long as you have them once at a time. That was the way they treated divorce. Oh, we won't have multiple wives at the same time, but whenever we get tired of one, we'll just divorce and remarry. So they started marrying women outside their faith who were enticing them to marry them. They were exchanging basically sex for their religion. And so it brought all kinds of pagan worship into the, into the Jewish culture. The second thing it did was it created a growing widow, or not necessarily widow, but a divorced and orphan culture because the men were leaving their wives and their children marrying new wives and leaving the, their ex to try and survive on their own. And they were all okay with this. And God traces it all back. When you started getting casual with your worship, your moral life followed. Number two. If we will return to God, he'll return to us. That promise is good forever. If we'll return to him, he'll return to us. And you hear that one of two ways. You say, I've never left God. And you start reading your resume. I go to church. I serve in this. I give it that. And God says, man, I can just tell in your voice you are more distant. You are more distant to me than you ever realize. If you return to him, he'll return to us. Praise his name. What a beautiful, beautiful word. And if he can say that to them in that condition, he can speak that over our hearts again today. Number three. We'll close here. God writes down the names of those who respond obediently to his message. He will remember them. Where are you taking that from? It, it's really the answer to one of those last questions. I don't know if I put it in your notes or not, but the question that I asked was, man, how did the people respond to this message? The answer is a few of them repented. You can read about it at the end of chapter 3. Some people responded. They heard this message, and they gathered together in a house group. They repented. They said, you know what? God's right. And then this sense of deep sorrow and grief flooded their soul. They said, we have cheated God. We've robbed God. We've distanced ourselves with God. We've lost him. We've disconnected from him. And they repented. And it says, they honored and feared his name. And here's what God instructed them to do. God had them write their names down in a book. And it says, God noted those who responded to his message with obedience. And he says, I will remember them. And when I come to judge, I will spare those whose name are written in this book. Now that's in Malachi, but we also see that in the New Testament, don't we? There's a message for all of us, the gospel message of Jesus. And we read that when we respond in humility and teachability, and obedience to the message of God. When we respond positively to his message, he remembers that. He also says when he comes to settle his accounts, he will spare those whose name are written in that book. 
That's what God really wants for all of us. He doesn't just want to rain down punishment. That's not his pleasure. But he wants to draw us into relationship with him. But we come to God in in relationship on his terms. We don't just come to God with any old thing. That's an indication of our heart. That's an indication of our love towards him. That's an indication of the temperature of our lives. And God says, those things just don't pass. It's not fun to talk about these things. It's not a message I get excited about. I dread these types of messages as a pastor because I've had to live with it talking over me all week. Oh, the things that I've recognized, I have complained to God about. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, if I really presented myself to you how I felt today, I would crawl up here on my face. And I would not even want to say a word to anybody. Because I recognize that maybe not all of these symptoms, but there are some that are absolutely habits in my life that need to be destroyed and broken. Now, I had the opportunity to deal with some of that this week so I could come this morning feeling clean and open before God. But man, have I been guilty of reminding God about the things that I want out of life that I don't have. Oh. But what is so beautiful is to be able to own that and bring that to God and have it immediately forgiven and having the floodgates open and just enjoy his companionship and his presence again. I'm like, that's really what I've been wanting. I just didn't know how to name it that way. I didn't know that all came with this. Let me pray for you this morning as our worship team returns. And it's okay for us to just be quiet in God's presence for a moment. That's a lot to take in and process today. And I don't ever want to apologize or be in a position where I have to apologize for what I say. But I really ask God to help me with the tone today not to deliver it out of anger or frustration. Because that's not the... That's not the feeling that I had when I was studying it. But I wanted to be clear. And, of course, there's lots left in Malachi that we didn't go over. But sometimes it could just be so much to handle taking it in. But the question I say is, God, what are you trying to say to me through this word this morning? And I want to give you an opportunity to respond positively to the word of God today. Especially if you would say, I know that I don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. I know that I have not confessed my sins. I know that I have not confessed my faith in Jesus. I know that I have not surrendered control of my life to Jesus. I know that that's the case in my life. And there is something going on inside of me right now. There is tension inside of me right now that needs to be resolved. And I don't know how to resolve it. And part of you wants to run out of this room and not ever have to feel that again. And there's another part of you that just wants it to be lifted off of you. Friend, I don't want you to run and resist. I want you to pause and surrender. How do I do that? Here's how you can resolve that tension. Admit, believe, choose. Admit, yes, I've sinned and I've fallen short. I've disobeyed and dishonored and disrespected God by the way that I've chosen to live. Choosing to live as though I'm my own God. Choosing to live as though he isn't. But I believe in Jesus and that he came to this earth. He, he lived the sinless life I should have lived. He died the death on the cross I deserved. He rose again. He's alive today. I believe in that. 
and I choose to surrender control of my life to him. I choose to accept forgiveness. I choose to invite him to make me into his image. If you're ready for that today, here's the prayer I want to lead you in. And you can pray this right where you're at right now. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in you and your life, your death, your resurrection. I believe I need saving. So I confess my faith in you and I confess my sins to you. And I choose to accept your very best into my life. I choose to accept forgiveness. I choose to surrender to your lordship. I am getting off the throne of my life. I'm inviting you to sit in its place. I'm getting out from behind the steering wheel. I'm inviting you to sit there. I am formally surrendering control of my life to you. And I invite you to take up your new home inside of me. I am returning to you. And I'm embracing you as you return to me. Heavenly Father, we are your sons and your daughters and we love you. You're our dad. You have always loved us. When we think about our life, how it could have been without you compared to how it is today, how can we help but be thankful? How can we help but be grateful? Forgive us for keeping the best to ourselves and not bringing to you with joy and with enthusiasm the very best that we can. God, will you teach us and direct us where we need to make changes. God, be concrete with us. Lord, we choose not to treat our times of worship, not only the the formal ones that we have, but our life. We will not treat you casually, thoughtlessly, with laziness. We don't want to be guilty of the same type of cycle that your people were in at the time of history we studied today. So, Lord, we choose as a church family to open our hearts up and to listen carefully to what it is you're speaking into our lives today. We receive it with thanksgiving. We receive it with appreciation that you care enough about us to put your finger on that. And now, God, we lean on you to be able to trust you to put these things into place in our lives as you see fit. In your mighty and matchless name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.